Well, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul has been sketching, as we've been looking at it, the new lifestyle for Christians. That we have put on a new life. That a new life has come into us. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And with that comes a new life. New Christian clothing that we are to put on. New behaviors. So he looked at things like our emotions, our anger. What that's supposed to look like as Christians. Our words. Our work. And now we come to give attention to our life. Drum roll, please. We're going to have a frank conversation this morning about the subject of sex, which the Bible, quite frankly, speaks frankly about. Uh, we sent a warning in the weekly email, and we posted it on social media. So, you've read the small prints. Parents, beware. But my children... My 11-year-old and my 13-year-old are in here. By the way, who do you think is most nervous about this sermon? My preteens, my wife, or my in-laws who are in the room? We could take a vote. Uh, I'm quite used to talking about this. The, the way I actually began speaking publicly is my, my first public speaking engagements was... <laughs> I, was, uh, I worked for the pregnancy resource in the crisis pregnancy uh, center in my hometown, where as a 16 and 17-year-old, we would go, I was a part of a group of high school students that would go and speak at health classes, um, asking and, and calling for students to choose um, abstinence as the safest sex ethic. And you know what my job was? I was the jock who was a virgin. <laughs> so, let me just tell you. This is pretty easy compared to that. So my children are here, and here's why. When Paul wrote this letter, it was to be read to the whole church. And he talks about sexual immorality here. And we know he intended for children to be present, because at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul specifically addresses children. Now there he's saying, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But we know that they were there. And more importantly than that, though, our children are going to get a sex ethic from somewhere. It's being given and handed to them in everywhere they go. And the most important place for our children to hear a vision about human sexuality is here. That this is not a place where we speak about it in hushed tones. And if we don't speak about it, if we, if we don't look at it with shameful glances, then we can actually speak about this in a positive way, in a way that is good and life-giving for our kids. And so we need our children to think rightly about sexuality and to get it right because our culture speaks about it as if it's absolutely and utterly fluid. And yet God is not fluid and his lordship is objective. And so let's read from chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. Follow along your Bibles as I read out loud. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now verse 3, we focus this morning. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Don't even talk about it. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead... Let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The sins, the reading of God's word, praise be to the Lord. All right, sex sells, doesn't it? I mean, if we put a big, if we were one of those churches that had um, 
uh, a, a, a sign that we told you what the sermon was this week, and we just put on the word, this week's sermon, sex. We have a pretty good crowd here today, but I guess it might be even bigger if we'd done that. I mean, sex sells everything, right? We use it to sell light beer and cars and toothpaste. Sex has always sold, and it continues to sell today, and there's no reason to believe it won't sell tomorrow. So into that world comes Paul, ready to give his pitch for the Christian sexual ethic. And you think, well, sex sells, so surely we're talking about sex. Surely our message will sell as well. (laughs) What is the Christian sexual ethic? Well, it's not so well received, is it? Because here it is. No sexual immorality, not even impurity or covetousness. In fact, don't talk about it even in an impure way. The Greek word here for sexual morality is a word that you're familiar with. It's the Greek word porneia, from which we get our root word for porn or pornography. It is a broad term. It's an umbrella term. It is not the same as adultery. Adultery is actually, a, 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 this is a larger term under which a, 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 adultery would fall. But this is a term for any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. The biblical sex ethic is clear over the course and scope of the whole of Scripture. Believe me, there was a a day when I looked for the loopholes. I have not found any. The clear Christian teaching on the biblical sex ethic has remained consistent for the whole of Scripture and for the last 2,000 years. And it is this, that sex is reserved for the marriage between one man and one woman, period, full stop. That means, outside of that, that we are to abstain from all sexual expressions outside the confines of one man and one woman. This includes, but is not limited to, ready to write these down? Any sex outside of marriage, pornography and lustful fantasies, bestiality, polygamy, adultery, orgies, rape, pedophilia, unrepentant homosexuality, incest, prostitution, cross-dressing, that's in the Bible too, seduction, unrepentant transgenderism, and the genital mutilation that comes with it, and sex abuse. I could go on, but I've given the parents enough vocabulary words to explain to their kids for one day. This ethic applies to those of you who are in high school and in a dating relationship. This ethic applies to 56-year-old single men and women with heterosexual desires. You are to submit those desires to the lordship of Jesus Christ and until he gives you the opportunity to live into those desires in the context of marriage, you're to abstain from them. The same applies to somebody who lives with same-sex attraction. Until God gives you the desire, the desire and the ability and the opportunity to enter into a marital relationship that he would endorse with someone of the opposite sex, then the call in your life is to live with abstinence. And it is a hard and holy, and high calling. Now, how does that strike your fancy? How well does that sex ethic sell today? Well, not so well, does it? The Christian sexual ethic is at best strange to the world around us. Most often, it's actually seen as ridiculous, irrational, or even impossible. And at worst, it is actually considered repressive, abusive, and downright unhealthy by the world around us. And it may actually seem that way to you as well. Monogamy? Are you kidding? 
But the reality is that this is not a new phenomenon, the Christian sexual ethic being a difficult pill to swallow for the world around us or for Christians themselves. The Christian sexual ethic has always been strange. This is being stated in the midst of the Greco-Roman world. They also thought this idea was ridiculous. Many of the early Christians were coming out of pagan religions where not only was sexual immorality completely condoned, it was actually a part of their worship to pagan gods. That's why it was called temple prostitution. In fact, in Latin, there were 25 different words simply for prostitute. Meanwhile, in Latin, there is not a singular term to refer to an adult male virgin because it was inconceivable to them. 25 words for prostitute, zero words for someone over the age of 18 who is a virgin. It was essentially unheard of and inconceivable to call men, in particular, to chastity. But the two ways that the early church most distinguished itself as different from the world around us and as holy was two things. One, its care for the lowly and the poor, and two, its sexual ethic and practices. One church historian actually observed this. He said the early Christians were promiscuous with their money but guarded with their bodies which is quite the opposite of us. One historian named Kyle Harper in a fabulous book titled Shame to Sin, where he posits that the early church, as it grew and became a dominant worldview in the first three centuries, set off the most significant and most radical sexual revolution in the history of mankind. The 1960s had nothing in comparison to it because they flipped the view of chastity and of sexuality upside down. And suddenly women were treated correctly. Pedophilia was not, only, was not condoned anymore, but it was actually crushed. And you could not be a member of the church and carry out such activities. And so therefore there was more safety and dignity given to those in marriage and otherwise in their life. The Christian sexual ethic has always been a head-scratcher for the world around us. And is all, but it's always been an element that sets us apart from the world. But also stunningly, it can be one of the most attractive elements to Christianity if we are willing to unabashedly and without blushing present the biblical vision for sexuality that extends beyond merely a no touchy and that proclaims that the fences around it is not because God thinks sex is something that we are to avoid, but because God has imbued sex with immense power and wonder and purpose. The Christian sexual ethic exists not arbitrarily, but is actually as God's gift to you. Let me seek to sell you. <laughs> I'm going to try to sell you on the Christian sex ethic by submitting, call you, submit your life to it by pointing to three important things the Christian sex ethic does this morning. First, the Christian sex ethic discouraged degrading the gift that God has given to us in sex. It is interesting that Paul says that we must not engage in sexuality, immorality. But he also says, not only that, but we must not joke about it. We must not joke about sexually immoral things, nor are we to, to speak about sex in a crude or profane way. And the point he is making is not that you shouldn't ever talk about sex. He'd be violating it in this very moment. But the point is that what he wants here is that you're not going to speak about it in a crude and profane way because it is something that we are not to treat lightly. 
And don't laugh about it when the world runs the gift of sex through the mud. That's not funny. It is destroying something that God says is a gift for you, and we are treating it as a curse. Avoid sexual immorality and do not even joke about it, because sexual immorality is no joking matter, because it has destroyed life after life after life, and it is a destruction of the gift that God has given to us. Paul addresses the way the world views Sex in much more detail in First and First Corinthians six and seven. One of the verses is this in verse thirteen. He says this: "Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food." In other words, our, our just our passions are we, we have an appetite, and God will destroy both one and the other. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The world treats what he's saying here. The world treats sexual activity as merely an appetite. It's something we need to do, like eating and drinking. It's on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so you better do it. And if you don't take part in it, it is unhealthy for you. Now, today it sounds like this. Of course people sleep together outside of marriage. It is natural, and we should be free to do what feels natural to us. But you know what this view assumes? This view assumes that we are merely a conglomeration of animalistic appetites, And we have said something incredibly insulting, even despairing, about the human state. Because we are more than animals. An animal is enslaved to his instincts and his desires. You see, and and they don't have some sort of deeper connection going on when they mate. You see, a male and female lion in mating season, neither lion is looking about the other when they mate. I wonder if he is as committed to this relationship as I am. Because a lion is just doing what is natural, which is a part of their appetite. It is raw appetite. But sexual expression to the world is is supposed to be nothing more than that. It's just the natural appetite. Therefore, you take part in it. This is how the world views our sexuality. And its view of sex and sexuality turns us into raw consumers. Did you notice that the text says, no sexual morality, nothing impure, or covetous? It is connecting it to the 10th commandment on covetousness. Paul connects sexual sin to coveting. Sexual sin is viewing and treating another person, another human person made in God's image as something merely to be consumed. It is degrading to other image bearers. And the worldview behind the vast pornography industry and the hookup culture is a worldview that dehumanizes you, that soils and degrades your worth. And the world's degrading view and actions around sex is having terrible and horrific consequences, even in our own culture. Anne Maloney, she's the associate professor of philosophy at the College of St. Catherine, St. Paul, Minnesota. She's written a number of articles on this idea. She's in her position as a professor, has had many conversations with very bereaved college-age girls who have given into hookup culture, and their lives are being broken up over it. She says this, Women have never been more sexually liberated than the women of today are. No more are they shackled by ridiculous bounds like commandments and moral rules and words like chastity. They shout, we're free, yet they whisper, why are we so miserable? Louise Perry, she's a journalist, a secular journalist who writes, uh, who wrote for a rape crisis center for many years and then wrote about it in her work for the Daily Mail in Britain and then the New Statesman magazine. She wrote a book last year that's been making waves, particularly in feminist circles, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, where she argues that all moral libertinism and callous disenchantment of liberal feminism in our contemporary hypersexualized culture represent more loss 
than gain for women. She says this, we need to re-erect the social guardrails that have been torn down. To do that, we have to start by stating the obvious. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough, which is the world's right. That's the only standard. As long as two consenting adults, you can do whatever you want. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. And marriage is good. One illustration she gives here in another article in Common Sense Magazine, Louise Perry shares a 2021 TikTok video, and I think we may be able to show this for you. It may take just a minute. Can you show that, Abby, you think? I'm going to let you guys watch this and get her perspective. Hey, guys. I, like many other college students, am someone who is entangled in hookup culture. And often hookup culture um, makes it difficult for me to determine whether or not I'm, what I'm doing is you know, good for me and kind to myself. And I think very often, especially as women, we are led astray from what we genuinely actually deserve. So here's what I've been doing lately to keep that in check. Take a childhood photo of yourself. This is probably my favorite photo of me as a kid. And remember that that is you. You are that person. And think about the messages that you've received from your partners in hookup culture. Um, something that's been made very clear to me quite often is that through hooking up with people, that those people don't believe that I, there's something about me, there's something about her that they don't think is deserving of commitment and love, or at least like a genuine unafraid display of love. Am I okay with that for her? Am I okay with someone determining that there's something about her that is only worthy of being a late night call? Am I okay with that for her? Would I let this happen to her? Would I let her be a late night drunk second option? Or would I demand that she be taken out to dinner? Would I demand that she be shown off to your friends and kissed in public and taken care of in the daytime and given commitment? Yes, I would. Like from a third person, like overview, you know, like caretaker point of view, I would never let any of this stuff happen to her. Obviously, you have to suspend your understanding that this is a child, so children wouldn't be hooking up anyways. Like, I, I'm assuming we all get the premise here. And it's really sad to see how much distance has been created over my lifetime, over the course of my adolescence and adulthood, between the worth that I see in this person and the worth that I see in myself. And I think hookup culture, especially in the messages that we receive about ourselves in hookup culture, has exacerbated that difference. So, yeah, I just thought I'd share some thinking I've been doing. That video went viral last year on TikTok. Did you hear what she said? Did you hear some of the key words? She's deserving of commitment, like maybe marriage. 
I wouldn't let these things, these, this act, what I've taken part of has degraded me, degraded her worth or how I feel about myself. And Maloney later on in that same article I referenced earlier said, it is not a coincidence the top two drugs prescribed in our university's health center are first, birth control, and second, antidepressants. Hookup culture is the logical expression of sex without boundaries, without any mention of God's ethic or design. Instead, the Christians, what does the Christian sexual ethic say about us? It says about us as humans that we have worth and value. In fact, what does it even say, we'll just bring it down even further, because it's part of our, our humanity. What does it simply even say about our bodies? The Christian sex ethic says your body has value. How your body is treated matters to God. I quoted a couple times this morning already from 1 Corinthians 6. Listen to what Paul says in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Your body matters. It's not even yours ultimately. It's his. He gave it to you. He looks out for you. And in verse 13, as we already read, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for what? For the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you understand how profound that is? The Lord says, I, your body is made for me, for connection to me, and me for connection to you. God made you and formed you. You are not junk. And to throw it around without others who will commit to you for a lifetime and in this way is to degrade. It's to degrade the gift that God has given you and his love and affection for you. Anne Voskamp, she's a famous blogger and Christian writer, wrote an open letter to one of her sons encouraging him in the area of chastity and purity. And she said this, your naked body deserves the honor of being shared only with someone who is coveted to never stopping loving your naked soul. So, the first thing the Christian sex ethic does is it, it discourages the degrading of our bodies and the gift that God has given us in sex. But we need more than that, more than just simply offense. And unfortunately, Christian culture has often not given us much help here, has it? It's pretty much been like, the fence, that's it. It's just a no, big no, stop signs, things with X's across it. The traditional conservative approach either ignores sex or sees sex as unseemly, right? What did we used to have in the 1950s and 60s? The cleavers had separate beds. We can't even imagine the thought that they were. We weren't even supposed to think about the fact that they slept in the same bed. And so we are, we are cold, and Christian purity culture is that sex is ugly, dirty, and so make sure you save it for the one you love. And you're just now catching that? All right. Instead, what does this passage tell us to be, is to be developed in us? Did you see it? What's the opposite? The positive command here is what? Thanksgiving for our sexuality. Thanksgiving for it. And therefore, the Christian sex ethic, I'm going to see the second point, promotes gratitude for the gift of sex. God is pro-sex. Let me, let me make sure I say this very plainly because I gave the sex ethic earlier very plainly. God's view of sex is that it is good. Just as he looked at you when he created you and created Adam and Eve, he looked at them and he said, to all creation, it is good. And to man and woman, he said, it is very good. It is his idea. 
It, you know, it's his idea. He gave it to us. It wasn't like God was like, you know what? I'm struggling to tell Adam and Eve apart, so I'm going to give him these parts and her these parts. And then he went off, and then the next day he came back for his daily walk with them, and they were doing things with those parts. He was like, hey, now, wait a second. No, this was his idea. And you'll never observe the no to porneia unless you hear God's most enthusiastic yes to sexuality. And see with thanksgiving God's high and holy purposes. I'm going to try to give you the biblical purposes for sexuality this morning. First, Joel, Joel, Joel recommended that I have you repeat all these after me. But I'm not going to make you do that. The first is this. <laughs> yeah. Sex is for procreation. The first command of the Bible is what? Be fruitful and multiply. This is how God chose to bring us into the world. You were not planted in the backyard like a potato. <laughs> According to Genesis, sex was not just made for individual fulfillment, but get this, it was for community building and for world shaping. Your sex life, in the words of the poet Wendell Berry, is personal, but it is never private because it's for the formation of whole communities. It's not just your business, it's everybody's business. Because it is part of a larger project of building community, creating families for children to grow and for communities to flourish. This is why it really matters for Christians to stand up for laws about this. So get married, have babies, and tell those babies about Jesus. The Puritans called this marriage bed evangelism. Second, sex is for pleasure. Now, this one I'll make you repeat. No, uh, sex is for pleasure. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible celebrating romance in, in sexual pleasure. We, we don't let our children read it until they're 21 years of age, and they're not, no longer can look at us in the eye. It's called the Song of Songs, and we have struggled throughout church history how to translate it because we, we, are, we are so bashful with it. But what is Song of Solomon? It is an erotic love poetry. Sex is for pleasure, and it's also for just plain fun. And so while sex is a serious thing because of its importance, that does not mean that it cannot be silly and fun. One of the things I tell those who are in my premarital counseling is as one of the last sessions is always on sex. And one of the things that I tell them is this. Listen, please laugh. It's like we're, when we get caught up in it, it's this beautiful, passionate thing. But every once in a while, if you kind of look back at sex, you're like, this is the most ridiculous thing in the world. I cannot believe we do this. And so laugh about it. Do not be soap opera serious about sex because sex is funny. It's funny because you have bodies and bodies do weird things. Because you have bodies that elbow each other in the nose, your head butt each other, or actually make weird sounds. So laugh about it because it's funny and it's for your pleasure. So sex is for procreation, it's for pleasure and fun. And there's been a great debate over the course of the Christian history as to which it is. The Roman Catholic Church says no fun, all procreation. But the Reformed people, thank God for them, came along and says more fun. <laughs> Even while you have more babies. But it goes way, that is not all that it's for. Actually, it goes much deeper than that. Sex is actually designed by our creator as to be a sealing act. And here we get to the deep stuff. It is a bonding, a covenant binding act. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, it says this. Do you not know that he who is joined, that word joined is a key word, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. It's like uh, a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, where it says that Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed, and the two became one flesh. 
You read that and you think he's just, maybe he's just talking about physical union, but that can't be what he's saying. Otherwise, he would say, don't you know that when you have physical union, you have physical union? He's clearly talking about something more that the physical union does. Paul is saying that when you have physical union, a much deeper union is being both represented and actually actively taking place. You see, sex is God's way that he has given us for one person to say to another, I belong to you completely and exclusively, and I will belong to you only, only, and in every aspect of my life, socially, legally, economically, spiritually, and emotionally, I am yours. When the Bible talks about sexual union, about joining two people together, the word there for joining is the Greek word that means to bond to cement, to glue. That is what sex is at a deeper level. It is a sealing and cementing act. It's what we call it the consummation of marriage. It is meant to bond two people. It unites not just bodies, but souls and whole lives together. This is why one of the best modern pictures or illustrations of sex is superglue. Superglue unites, and it unites with extraordinary strength, and might I say rapidity. So as with superglue, be careful where you use it. I walked into my daughter's closet, my six-year-old daughter's closet yesterday, and she had taken an entire bottle of glue and poured it all over her closet. Guess what? Ain't coming out. Unless I rip something out. So as with superglue, be careful where you use it because once you have bonded things together with superglue, to tear those objects apart is going to be ugly, difficult, and once you use that superglue, if you tear those objects apart, guess what happens? It'll take a piece of you with it. Perhaps you can begin to see why there's prohibitions around sex, not to keep you from joy, but to help you actually experience joy. It is not because God is a cosmic killjoy or a sex tease, giving us sex but then saying, no touchy. It is but the prohibitions are there to protect the purpose of sex and to protect your joy in this world. He made you and he wrote the owner's manual. He gave a sexuality to be enjoyed but only in a particular context in which it is safe to use where you won't blow yourself up. In marriage, it's a wonderful thing. It's a covenant cement and, you, and so over years and years, you keep pouring that covenant cement in there. And guess what happens? That bond keeps deepening over time. Some objections, though. Some of you are objecting, well, what if I just, I'm not talking about hookup culture. Andrew, I'm just, I just, I'm committed to this girl. I've been with her for three years. What if I love this person? I just want to express that love. Doesn't that mean I don't, I don't, I don't have to marry them? But we want to express ourselves in this way. Well, think about that. What are you saying? You're saying, I want to take my clothes off with you, but I'm not willing to commit my life to you. It's aberrant. You're saying, I'm willing to be physically vulnerable with you, but I'm not willing, or I don't see the worth in you, to make myself financially vulnerable or maritally vulnerable. Sex is your body saying, and you can't help it. It's going to say it. It's what it's designed to say. Sex is your body saying, I want to be completely committed to you in every area. And so if your body wants to say that, then get committed in every area first. Another objection. But I don't intend for sex to be that serious. I mean, we're just having some fun here. We're not intending for our bodies to be quote-unquote saying what you're saying it's saying. But you see, the reality of the act, even if gone unnoticed or unacknowledged, 
the reality of the act still remains. It's speaking whether you want it or not, which might I say with this, for you married people, that's what you're thinking about this, you're like, this is even for married people a little bit too deep, isn't it? I mean, we have sex, we just have sex. No, what I'm saying is, what well, the great thing is, the cement is being poured. You don't have to sit there and go, Lord, we thank you for this holy consummating act that we're about to partake in. No, it happens on its own. It is designed to do it. But for those of you that are not married, that cement should not be there. Now, let me show you where this, this is inherently how we view sex. And one illustration might be in a terrible movie called Vanilla Sky. It's Tom Cruise's worst movie by far. But Cruise has a relationship with this beautiful blonde, and she can't handle the breakup. And so in the course of the movie, she stalks him. And when she finally confronts Cruise, she says this, Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether your words do or not? That's what I'm saying at the point. Or maybe this will come home a little bit more closely for some of you, have you experienced this in your life? This is why for some of you, your breakups are so devastating. Because if you've had sex with someone in one form or another, the glue worked. It bound you. Whether you intended to or not, you didn't intend for it to work so well, but it did. And after such breakups, how do people talk about or describe the experience of the breakup? It ripped my heart out. A part of me went with them. Because it did. And this has consequences, not just for those past relationships, but for your present and your future relationships. You see what happens if you have multiple sexual partners and you're moving from person to person. If you take glue and you connect it to something and then you rip it off and you connect it to something else, what happens to that glue over time? Your bonding apparatus loses its inherent power. And what you find is that when you actually do want to connect and commit to somebody for a lifetime, you find you're going, wait, this person is so much better to me and so much kinder, and our, our depth of our connection everywhere else is so much deeper, but this does not feel as deep. Why? It's because we have been stripping it of its power. Sex is grade A soul superglue, so be careful where you stick it. It's going to do its work. But let me, might, might I add this? For those of you, really quickly, we're going to get to some good news in a second. For those of you that are despairing about what I just said, the covenant has healing power. I sat with so many young couples in which sexual promiscuity has been a part of their life and they're ending the marriage and this is a great fear. Oh my, my super glue has lost its stickiness. But you know what? God, by his spirit and by covenant making, he can renew sex for you. Fourth and finally, as a deep and significant and powerful as sex is, as binding souls, humans together, it has one more grander, more transcendent purpose that God has given us, whether you're having sex or not, actually. So this is for singles or married. Sex is for pointing us to God. See, perhaps the greatest endorsement of sex in the Bible is the fact that God uses marriage and marital sex as a metaphor for his relationship with his people. This is the picture that he uses. Now, you might go, ew, don't run God through that. That's actually showing how much we've degraded sexuality. 
God says this is a picture of the intimacy that you're supposed to have with me. Ephesians 5, which we're going to look at for eight weeks later on this semester, says this, that in behold, I tell you a great mystery, that marriage speaks of Christ's love for the church. Think about that means the most blissful sex and delightful connection and also the most agonizing, cold shower-inducing, unfulfilled longing, both of them, is but an echo or a shadow of our longing for intimacy with God. That's what it points to. That we long for this. He's given us this desire in our hearts and our souls to be connected in intimacy with someone. And ultimately, that desire, whether you have some part of it scratched in this world or not, that desire is pointing to your longing for God. Humans are the only animal in the world that make love face to face. And the greatest longing of the human soul is to experience the love of God face to face. To look at him quorum deo. To look at, see him, and see how he looks upon you. And the intimacy of sex, of sex and the belonging for that experience points us to what we were really made for. Intimacy and deep soul connection with the God who made us. G.K. Chesterton put it provocatively, and you're thinking, wait, we're only now getting the provocative part of the sermon? But he said this, the man who goes into a brothel goes in looking for God. Sex is what they believe they want, but really what they're looking for is the intimacy and the fulfillment of a deep and soul hunger that they have. You see, in sex, we are taking our clothes off in front of someone else, and we are longing to hear the voice of another saying, you are good, and you are beautiful, and you are lovely, and I want you to be utterly exposed before someone who delights in us and takes pleasure in us and takes pleasure in our pleasure. God is giving sex holy and profound meaning and purpose. This is why there's beautiful, wonderful, high fences around it. But this drops us into our last point. This one will have to be more brief to close us this morning. Point three is this. The Christian sexual ethic demands satisfaction in the giver of the gift of sex. Picking up where we just left off, and that this points us to our need, our greater longing for intimacy with God. It then says this in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or a pure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God of Christ. And you're like, oh, listen, I've been already feeling a little bit exposed out here in this crowd. This, this verse is a little bit rough for me in this moment. So let me, see, let me say this real quick. You will not go to hell for violating the Christian sex ethic. Your sexual morality will not send you to hell any more than your sexual morality can get you into heaven. It is not saying, keep these rules and you'll get into heaven. It is not saying, as the Christian culture is often taught about sex, which is, this is the worst of all sins, and if you commit this, you have to be sent away. But it's saying this. It is saying this. And it's very serious words. You must choose this day who you will serve. You can have one spouse or the other. Will you choose sex and your sexual longings? Will that be your God? Or will the lover of your soul be your God? You must choose this day whom you will serve with your whole life. That's what we've been talking about the last four or five weeks. With your work, with your emotions, with your play, with your money, with your parenting, and yes, your sexuality. And here's the point of the verse. To reject Christian sexual ethic in a sustained and settled manner. That is to say, I'm going to do what I want with whom I want and use my sexuality as I choose to. And to remain in that rebellious place is ultimately to say to God, I want nothing to do with you. 
And it's to reject the lordship of Jesus Christ and the lordship of the love of your Savior, and it's to find yourself outside of his kingdom. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. It's like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, essentially, what must I do to be saved and Jesus, to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. And the rich young ruler says, great. Now, wait a second. Hold on. Which laws are you talking about? Just to be clear, Jesus looks at him and he feels a deep love for him. And he says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you possess and give to the poor and follow me. And it says the man's face fell and he went away sad. Jesus is saying to him, what it means to have eternal life and to belong to my kingdom means that you take me as your greatest treasure. That I am your greatest trust. He is challenging the young ruler and saying, right now money is your greatest trust and treasure. Jesus says, you must trust me and treasure me more than anything else. Jesus is a giver. You know what it says at the end of the passage? It says, listen, you can give up all these things and when I come for you, I will give you multiple folds more. I'll give you all the riches of heaven and earth, an inheritance that you cannot imagine. But what money was to that young man, sex is for many of you. Sex is your God. It's your ticket to get what you treasure. A man, a woman, a commitment, an acceptance. And so you deify sex and you give in what it can give to you. But when we do that, when we treasure sexual expression more than we treasure and trust in God to provide us with the acceptance and the love that we need, then we reject God. And in so doing, we ask sex to do for us what only God can. And that is to fulfill our soul hunger, to fill our loneliness and to settle our ache. But sex is only a signpost. It is there to arouse in us a sense of destination of where we really want to go and where we really want to achieve it. But you cannot ask the sign to be the destination. You cannot park 43 miles outside of Atlanta, outside of a sign that says, Atlanta, 43 miles, and you get out and you're taking photos in the middle of I-20. When you move from partner to partner, it's because you're looking for that yes. You're looking for that acceptance. You're looking for something that only God can provide you, and you're asking another to do what only God can do for you, and that is to cure your loneliness and your soul hunger. And our rampant sexuality is not a gland issue. It is a loneliness issue. And it's ultimately a trust and a treasuring issue. And so now you see why our culture is so obsessed with sex? Because each of us are yearning for connection. And sex is at least a, some frail shadow of a moment of that. It is a taste of the self-forgetting, self-transcending, self-giving ecstasy that we were long for and we were created for. It is a longing for intimacy. Behind porn and massage parlors is a longing for intimacy with God. But we're looking for it, as John Travolta's put it, in all the wrong places. But might I say this to you? There is a lover for your soul. And you were made for him. You want to talk about compatibility? There's compatibility. And he invites us into a relationship with him where face-to-face, completely and utterly exposed before him, he will look at you and say, Ah, my beloved, I delight in you. And we can give ourselves to this Lord completely. Why? Why can you throw yourself? Because we know that he has already showed up. He has already given himself to us completely. Because he has laid down his whole life his body, his emotions, his wealth, his glory. He sacrifices it all to be in covenant communion with you. And he did this 
Not because you were faithful to him. No, he did it in the face of your lack of sexual fidelity. That when you were in the season when you were misusing his gifts, when you're giving yourself to all such lesser lovers, and not only were you deserving of him casting you off, and when you were actively seeking to destroy your life in this way, it was for you, that adulterer, and that fornicator, and that luster, and that pornographer, it was for you that he came to die. He fully knew all the STDs of your sin. He saw the marks and the warts in your body, and yet in all your nakedness, he covers you over, and he washes you clean by his blood. And so understand this. This sermon is not here to make you feel bad. The bad news is that you're already sexually broken. We said it earlier in Psalm 51. I was conceived in sin. And you knew that coming in today in your heart of hearts. But the good news is that there is one who invites you into an eternal covenant, not one night stands. An eternal covenant with him. He has and is and will give himself fully in faithfulness to you as the lover of your soul. He is worthy. He is worthy of your fidelity, of your chastity, of your purity, of your abstinence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is, um, when we talk about this, there is a deep soul shame that is there. Even talking about it, we feel naked. We have to check to make sure we have clothes on. And Lord, you said Adam and Eve were stood there before one another and before you naked and unashamed. And so, Lord, there are those in this room that they need to go home and that's how they need to present their heart to you. And they need to open themselves up to you again and say, Lord, there is, there is some deep and sorrowful ways in which I have been unfaithful to you. But Lord, more deeply, they need to hear your voice and your word over them. <laughs> I think of that girl in the video speaking actually about her own little child, herself, and yet how much more God speak to, speaks to us as his little children, than more so as his bride, and whispers over us his songs of love and affection. So, Lord, would you wash us, make us clean, cleanse us in the, the blood and the water, and convince us that you are the true one who, who is worth giving our life to, our all, our covenant from this time and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.